You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. My belief is the first people they should go to get their money from is their customers. This week, my conversation is with Dan Whitaker, an expert in the many ways that startups can raise money. Dan was first introduced to me as an angel investor, but he's also an experienced entrepreneur, having founded a number of different companies, some of which became very successful. In this conversation, though, we talk mostly about his work as an investor and the world of early stage financing in Oregon, especially angel investing. For a quick overview of what angel investing is and kind of how that works, be sure to check out the previous episode of this podcast. Otherwise, feel free to dive into angel investing with me, my guest, Dan Whitaker. I hope you'll enjoy. So so my first question is that there are a lot of stages where a company might pursue outside funding, and uh, you've been involved in a lot of them with well, as an investor and mentor, and you started a good number yourself. So these days, at, at what point do you like to get involved in, a, in another company? Generally, I like to step in now, at, at this point, at uh, the scaling stage, where the product is basically done, and they want to take it to market and scale up the, the marketing and sales group. And, you know, basically, the scaling up stage is what I'm looking to get involved in. Okay, so what's attractive about that particular stage for you? Um, well, a lot of, let's go back for a little bit about the stages that I sort of think companies go through. And one is the whole concept of the product market fit, which doesn't take a lot of capital. In fact, it can be done for virtually nothing, which is when the entrepreneur has the idea, they take it to the customer before they even build the product. And I really encourage the entrepreneurs to go talk to their customers before they build a demo or before they um, you know, try to do something, go talk to the customers about what it is the customers want, what are they willing to pay for, how much are they willing to pay for, what is the pain point that the customers have that the entrepreneur is really trying to solve. And that just doesn't require a lot of money. It requires uh, effort on the entrepreneur's part, uh, talking to and visiting potential customers, but they don't need funding at that point. In fact, should not have funding because uh, if they have funding, they tend to spend too much time working on the product itself or the demo and not talking to the customers about what they want. So they really need to get the customer feedback first and then build a product that they think fits that what the customers want. So in that early stage, they don't need the funding and it's almost inappropriate to be funded at that point. Um, until they get the product market fit um, really honed. But once they get the product market fit done, then they go build uh, some, depending on what the product is, they might need funding to build the product. But a lot of times in today's marketplace, they don't even need much funding to do that. But once you start, once you get the product done and you need to scale it and get lots of customers, it's very difficult to do that without funding. And that's where um, the angel networks can step in. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you touched on something that I, I'm curious about. Because you mentioned that basically uh, it, it doesn't take a ton of capital now uh, even to develop a product and, and get it to market. Do you have a feel kind of what fraction of companies today are uh, bootstrapped versus those those that need outside financing? That's a great question. Uh, you know, there's a statistic that um, outside financing, before a company, the large companies on the Fortune 500 list, half of them never got any outside funding. Uh, so it's, you know, you can scale it. I mean, obviously, if, if they've gone public, they have outside funding. Mm-hmm. But before they got to that point, did they need any outside funding? Half companies do not. Um, so it's 
a lot of companies can succeed and do very well uh, without any outside funding. Uh, but it takes a lot of innovation and uh, <laughs> I sort of make the joke once in a while that the majority of the innovation is not in the product. It's in how do you finance your your company. It requires how do you finance and uh, sell your product requires as much innovation as the product itself. And there's a lot of people don't really catch that, but it's, it does require a lot of innovation to to. Uh, finance, market, and sell your products. Yeah, can you kind of dig into that? What does that look like specifically? Uh, the financing or the uh, yeah, like sales the, and marketing side, or like the innovation of the financing. Well, um, one of your questions was, have I ever seen anything really innovative yeah. in the financing side? And I, I one of them came to mind that there was a company that uh, I used to work with, uh, Evergreen Technologies, and it did a CPU upgrade. So they took Basically, this is in the old days where they could take a 286 chip, pop it out of your computer, and put a 386 SX chip in there that uh, was from Intel, and it worked. Um, it worked okay. It wasn't perfect in all the motherboards, but it worked okay. But they got into the laptops market, and where they needed the customer to ship the laptop to them, they would upgrade it from a 286 computer to a 386 computer and ship it back to the customer. Well, they essentially did that by selling the customer a FedEx box that the customer would put their computer into and ship it to them. They would upgrade it and ship it back. So essentially they were doing this for like five or 600 bucks, but the reality is they were selling an empty box for 600 bucks. (laughs) So the customer paid the 600 bucks, they got a box to ship it to, to the, the company to, and the company upgraded and sent it back. But the company had all the money up front, had all their, not just their cost, but their profit before they even got the the, uh, um, the laptop to be upgraded. So, I mean, they were totally 100% financed by their customer, 100% up front. It was a very innovative sales strategy and finance strategy. Um, it worked out very well. Yeah, that's really interesting. How how common is that? It seems kind of, I mean, it seems like a great situation if you can get it. it sure. Is that something that companies can pull off often at all? Uh, it happens a lot more on the successful companies than one thinks about. Uh, so fundamentally, where should, where should companies get their money? Uh, should they go to outside financing or, you know, all that stuff? My belief is the first people they should go to get their money from is their customers, uh, is their potential customers. Um, that is the best way to get your financing. And there's lots of ways to do that. Um, one of them is things like Kickstarter. And Kickstarter is fundamentally uh, saying you're going to develop a product and you go to your customers through Kickstarter, get them to give you the money up front, and then you go build the product and, and uh, after you have the money. So, I mean, it's fundamentally getting the customer to pay for your development and manufacturing. And I think it's a very, very valid way of doing it. Uh, We used to do design groups where we had some customers. We would get 10 of the customers together and get them to each. These were um, oil distribution customers, so they had money. But get each one of them to pay us $10,000 a month, 10 customers, paying us $10,000 a month to develop some software that we were going to deliver a year later. And then, so we had a hundred grand a month to hire the developers, develop the software, 
Uh, and to those kind of customers, $10,000 was not a big number. I mean, it's essentially one employee, and we were going to hire 10, um, you know, so they couldn't do it by themselves. And more than that, it was the customers were involved from the beginning in uh, what the product was and how it was developed, and they were involved in the testing cycle and, you know, in the, in the plans and everything else. So when we did actually deliver the product a year later, it was exactly what they wanted because they were involved in the design and testing of it and everything else all along the way. So, you know, so it was funded by the customers. And then when we were done, we had a product that we could take to the rest to the rest of the world. Yeah, it seems like I did that a couple of times. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. And it seems like there's probably not a better way to get your concept validated. They will force you to pivot and change and make the product the way they want it because they're funding it. And, and more than that, you should make it the way they want it because, you know, if they're willing to pay for it, great validation. Yeah, exactly. You you don't waste any resources on on bad ideas because they you know specifically what they want. It's coming straight from them, and you don't have to guess. Right. Exactly. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So today, there there are a number of like different industries that vary um, in terms of their capital intensity, construction versus like a software company. Right. Is it necessarily true that a more capital intensive industry would need more outside funding than a less capital intensive one? Oh, well, it's generally true. They need either strategic partners or outside capital or something to uh, if they're capital intensive to make it make it fly. I mean, they um, or they give up some control. I mean. If you have a capital-intensive industry, let's say you're going to make a, a hard goods product, I mean, if you don't have the capital to make it happen, then you're going to go to uh, contract manufacturers or somebody else to make the product for you because you can't afford the factory to build it. Well, you're giving up some control somehow because they're not going to just build the product for you. They're going to actually make a profit on that that you would normally make if you're building it yourself. So you're splitting the profits with those contract manufacturers. So there's ways to get around the the uh, capital intensive side, but when you get around it, you're giving up um, part of your control and part of your profits to do that. And again, there are some industries you just can't get around that, and you ha- and you have to partner with people, and you know become part of the value chain um, versus doing it all yourself. You know nowadays. Obviously, there's, it's a lot easier to be what we call capital efficient, and we want to go and fund capital efficient uh, industries. That's why software and those kind of things are extremely capital efficient nowadays. And as angel investors, we're always looking to fund capital efficient industries. So that's why a lot of angel capital goes into the software side. It seems like it's kind of a catch-22, though, because they're a lot less likely to need, to need your money, right? They certainly don't need as much. That is for sure. What kind of things do they spend it on? Uh, generally, if things go ideally, they've already done the product market fit, and now they've you know done some wireframes or done a, a you know a, a prototype or a demo or something like that. But then, at, before you can ship the product to um, multitudes of customers and scale up the company, it requires the productization of it, which means things like getting the back-end servers so they're scalable. So, you know, it's no longer just a single server in the back, but it's working on AWS or something where it can automatically scale up to five servers if the demand does that. And, and the front end needs to not just be 
you know, prototype quality. It needs to be flushed out and really high quality front ends. Those kind of things cost money after you get uh, the customer uh, approving that they want it to get it so it's scalable. Costs, you know, you got to hire, typically in the software world, you got to hire three or four programmers and work on it for, you know, six months to a year to make that happen. And generally, you don't have a lot of revenue coming in while you're scaling the product so that it can scale. Interesting. So kind of a like quick and dirty approach only takes you so far. And, and then you need to kind of get it polished. Right, okay. exactly. To polish, polishing it costs money. It really does cost money. And it's what really makes it or breaks it too. Do you feel like that's a fundamentally different skill set for a founder? To go to move from getting the product validated to getting it scaled. Yes, uh, I'm sort of of the belief that it really requires two, uh, a couple of people nowadays in the modern world to be partners to make something uh, really successful. Uh, it typically takes a sort of gregarious, outgoing sales, marketing kind of person who wants to be out in front and you know be the public figure for the company and be the you know the contact with the customers. And then somebody who can put their head down and really, um, you know, concentrate and develop a product and, um, you know, sitting in the background, that's really the technical person that is capable of really building an outstanding product. And those personality sets tend to be a little different. Um, So most of the successful ones I've seen tend to have two people involved, you know, one out outward facing one, you know, product facing, you know, the technical guy and the sales and marketing guy, basically. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. So uh, how do you, well, as an investor, do you you just kind of, like if someone comes to you and they're only, and then they only have, you know, half the picture put together, what what would you tell someone like that? Well, uh, it's a great question. Depends on whether the technical person or the outgoing person, you know, uh, if they're, the technical person, boy, they need to get the uh, the outside person involved extremely quickly because they tend to uh, develop products that they would like, that they think is necessary without the necessary customer feedback on the product. So you try to get them matched up as quickly as possible with somebody who uh, does have the outward-facing skills. Uh, you didn't. And there's a lot of matchmaking that goes on. As an angel investor, we tend to do a lot of matchmaking amongst people, you know, going, you know, that guy's got a great idea and he's a good technical person, but, you know, he needs a good um, sales and marketing guy or vice versa, a great sales and marketing guy that needs a good product to go, you know, to go sell. And um, on a regular basis, those kind of matchmaking do happen. I mean, tell each other about each other. Hopefully they get together and and if they hit it off, great. You know, if they don't, they don't. But um, you know, try to put them together with the other skills that we think they need is is one I think of the fundamental values that a good investor can bring in. Uh, you know, they call it smart money. If 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 you can get investors involved that know your industry, have contacts in your industry, can bring more than just money to the table, but they can bring, you know potential employees and contacts and strategic partners and those kind of things. If you're looking for money, you definitely want to find money, angel investors or VCs or whoever that are connected and are smart money in whatever industry you're going into. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So there, there's a lot, 
that an angel investor spends time on and creates value with besides just writing checks. It sounds like creating those connections is, is very valuable. Absolutely. I, there's, um, I, I'm part of the Oregon Angels Fund, which is up in Portland, and we finance a lot of companies, and I can guarantee it, it's the angel network that invests in a company. Um, I mean, we are now, once we, once we make the investment in the company, we're sort of looking out for those companies now. I mean, we are trying to make connections, bring them customers, bring them strategic partners, bring them acquisition candidates. Um, so it's more than just the money. It is, uh, it's much more than that. It is the relationships that come with the money that we're trying to bring uh, to the table. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in, in Oregon, where maybe there's not quite as much of like a critical mass as you might find in like Silicon Valley or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the you know the Oregon Angel Fund is sort of a proof that I mean it's it's one of the uh, best performing um, funds in the United States. I think it's one of the top three. Uh, in fact, I think for the last two years it's been the top performing uh, angel group or venture capital group in the United States. And part of that, the reason behind it's so um, successful is because those companies are extremely successful that it funds because the investors and the angels get involved with the companies. So it's it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you get funded by the right people, you will be successful. Now, obviously, there's been some failures, but it's highly likely that they'll have much better averages than anywhere else if you get the right people involved. Well, since you brought it up, what do like return profiles look like for like an angel investor versus someone who buys like publicly traded company? Like how big are the winners and how many losers are there? Yeah, so there's some uh, overall overall statistics. Uh, Rob Wilkbank out of uh, Willamette University was heavily into studying the returns on angel investments. And, um, you know, his statistics sort of show that the average angel investor uh, that sticks with it gets about a 25 to 28% return on their money. Uh, so it's an extremely good return. Doubling your money every like, two to three years. Yep. Yeah. The problem with that is that it takes an average of 19 investments to hit the average because um, of if you make, let's, I'm going to bring it down to 10 for a second, but if you make 10 investments, five of them, you're going to lose 100% of your money. You just, even though you've done due diligence on them and you interviewed the, the uh, customers and the, the team, the management team and everything else, and you think it's a great investment, uh, smartest guys in the world lose 100% of their money on half of their investments. So now you got... <laughs> that, that takes <laughs> so some, gonna, uh, like some guts. Exactly. I mean... You know, so you, it's not an industry, it's not a, as an angel investor, you can't make just one or two investments uh, because on average, you're going to lose it. You know, the numbers dictate that you're going to lose it. And if you make 10 investments, you're going to get, you're going to have one extreme winner that is a 10 times your money uh, investment. So you get 10 times your money back. Well, that pays for all of your losses, right? Mm -hmm. If you get one out of 10, pays 10 times your money, you're break even. Yeah. Everything yeah. else is profit yeah. after that. Everything else is profit, and that's where you get the the. Uh, but to get to hit those kind of averages, um, the numbers were, or at least they were a couple of years ago. You had to make 19 investments, so it's 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 a numbers game. Right, and these aren't small checks. What what's a typical bet size, investment size? Yeah, so the smallest real investment size that's sort of normal around Oregon is five thousand um, bucks, and that's in that's as a group. 
So typically, um, there's Angel Oregon, the Willamette Angel Conference, the Ben Venture Conference. So there's uh, six, well, I'll say five venture um, there's conferences that go on that you can get together with a bunch of other people. You pitch in five grand, everybody pitches in five grand, and they'll make an investment typically of two to five hundred thousand at each one of these conferences. So, you know, that that's a good way to get started because you're in a group, you tend to make better decisions in the, as a group than you do individually, and you learn how to do due diligence. But those buy-ins on those conferences are typically five grand. Um, then it goes up from there. Most companies don't want an investment in them for less than 25 grand and a lot of times 50 grand because they don't want tons of investors that only put in uh, you know, a little bit of money. Uh, it's, just, it's too hard to manage the investors. So that's where groups of angels get together and invest as a group. So the company itself looks like it's one investment to them, but um, the angels are sort of managing themselves as a group. So for uh, smaller investors, like what kind of what's the point in their life uh, where that where getting involved in angel investment is like a reasonable idea? Like kind of what do they need to have put together and in terms of like a portfolio before they can really start getting this field and like and do so intelligently, you know? Yeah. So I would, you know, my sort of gut reaction is that uh, you need to, five grand is really the minimum investment and you need to assume you're going to make at least 10. So you need to have um, 50 grand that is really um, that you could lose, that you could lose, that you can just, uh, you know, assume worst case scenario. And if you put 50 grand out there and lost it all, it's not going to change your lifestyle. So these investments tend to be longer term, uh, you know, they tend to be, you know, they don't even start returning until three or four years into it. So you're not going to get any immediate return on these things. And in fact, uh, there's always this concept of uh, the losers lose quickly and the winners take a longer time. So if you make 10 investments, you know, the losers are going to, you're going to find out about the losers within a year or two, but the winners, you won't know for six or seven years. So yeah. It's uh, it's not a it's not a quick turnaround on these investments, uh, and you know you, it's going to look bad when you first get started because you're going to make some investments, and and the first ones that are going to turn around on you or that you're going to see results on are the losers. Right. So it's sort of depressing when you start get when you first get started. Yeah, like the best news you can get is no news. Like <laughs> there's no That's there's right. no good news. <laughs> That's right. There's no good news to start with. That's for sure. Yeah, boy, um, this is, it sounds like a really fun area, though. You're uh, like so intimately involved with like like each individual company compared to with. Um, I mean, even buying like like publicly traded company, you you usually don't get to meet the founder or see them speak live uh, before you can make your investment. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's it's definitely an extremely uh, interesting one because you know if you get involved in some of these things, you're evaluate to make an investment you've probably evaluated several investments so you get to know uh, the company and their strategy and all that stuff and you end up passing on some but then you get to um, you know invest in some and you t they tend to be spread out amongst different industries I mean you know software for enterprise software for you know accounting versus you know um, an app that does social media versus all this stuff there's a lot of different areas that, as an investor, uh, you get to see. 
It's yeah. um, and it's fun. It's extremely fun. I mean, I went to CES last week, you know, looking for stuff down there, and you know, you just you get the opportunity to go do that, and it's fun. You get to see all the new stuff that's coming out, you know, before the public does. Yeah, that, um, that would be really fun. Uh, so you mentioned something really interesting just there about uh, uh, how many. Like, or about needing to pass on quite a few of them and then, you know, uh, make investments. Uh, kind of, right. how many will you look at and pass on um, typically before you, like, buy, find one that you want to um, put some money behind? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Um, so I'm typically investing in groups more than individually now. I, Ten years ago, I used to make m- much more individual investments. Now I definitely do it as a as part of the Oregon Angel Fund, or the, when I'm an angel conference, or some other group of investors will get together and make an investment. Um, but I typically don't vet, invest very much on just by myself as a single investor in a single company. Um, so as groups, something like the Oregon Angel Fund, um, they probably look at I'm going to say a, a quick pass on probably 200 companies a year and actually do heavy due diligence on maybe 25 a year and then make a, an investment in, you know, six to 10 a year. So there's a lot of them. You just, it doesn't take you much time to look at them and you realize, you know, they're, you know, they don't have their management team. They don't have the product done. They haven't done product market fit or whatever. So, you know, you can, pass on them pretty quickly, but there's, you know, probably 25 to, and maybe more than that might be 25 to 50 that you get a few people together, uh, you start talking to them seriously, you start, you know, really doing some due diligence on them. And then of that, you know, you, you probably invest, we probably invest, I think last year we invested in nine, uh, nine investments. So it's, you know, but it starts off with a couple hundred. So when you invest with a group, just to, to kind of clarify my own understanding, uh, do you, uh, does it all kind of go into one pool and then like everyone like votes on what they invest in or are you kind of running your own portfolio apart from other people? No, so the Oregon Angel Fund, which I'll use that as the example, yeah. it is, um, it's a pool. So uh, there's I don't know, 180 investors. We put in money. Uh, the state actually puts in some money and some uh, nonprofits that, like the Oregon Community Foundation, you know, they want to help support startups, so, so they put in money. So there's a pool of 8 to $10 million a year. So we put in money every year, and we sort of generate a fund of, uh, let's say, $10 million, and then we make the investments every other month throughout the year. Okay, so then who get who gets to choose... Uh, what gets invested in and what doesn't? Do you get like proportional voting, or how does that work? Yeah, it's uh, the the investors. Um, so depending on what the company is and who has expertise in that particular area, we'll put together a due diligence group of let's say five to ten people who will go in and do serious due diligence on the company. They'll call the company's customers, they'll look at suppliers, they'll look at the financials, they'll look at uh, the management team and all of those kind of things. And they'll come back with a recommendation. And first of all, if they don't say yes, I mean, they, they, the due diligence group has to say, yes, we think it's a worthwhile investment. If they don't say it's a worthwhile investment, then it doesn't get passed to the larger uh, voting group. But as a group, 
as a due diligence group, if they say that it's a good, they think it's a good investment, then they bring it back to uh, a larger voting group. We call it the investment committee, and it's, I don't know, 60 people or so, and uh, we vote on it. And so that group needs to vote on it. And then there's also uh, the management team of the of the uh, Oregon Angel Fund, who actually run the fund, they also need to approve it. But generally, they'll approve it. If if the due diligence team approves it, most everybody else will approve it. It's very seldom that that the due diligence team uh, will approve something and then and then it gets nixed by somebody else. Although that it has happened, but generally, it's the due diligence team's uh, major issue is to make sure that it's a good investment. Okay, interesting. So every everyone winds up with the same uh, portfolio. Yep. Okay. All okay. the investors. All the investors end up with the same portfolio. Exactly. Well, it's, it's such an interesting way to make um, investments. I, I'm excited to uh, keep talking to people and learn more about the over like the next series. Of- so I was curious how it works um, investing and like just generally fundraising in Oregon versus um, say like in Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah. Are there differences between those two regions and how the things are done? Uh, great question. So, uh, so I've, I've done. Uh, on the other side of it, when I was raising money, you know, starting my companies and raising money, I raised, you know, several rounds out of Silicon Valley because there really wasn't any local uh, venture capitalists and stuff. But that was in the 90s, you know, so that's 20 years ago. Um, and so it was all, we had to go to the Bay Area to get money. And so we went down and raised it from them. In the last, over the last years, um, there's a lot more local capital available in Portland and Seattle than there used to be, um, although it still pales in comparison to the kind of money that's available down in the Bay Area. In general, the Bay Area prices, that the values that they put on companies are more than they would put on them up here. So if there's a pre-money valuation down here of $5 million, the pre-money valuation in the Bay Area might be $8 million. I mean, so there's, there's definitely... Uh, the pre-money valuations, which is basically how you value a company, uh, you know, it's how much is the value of the company before you put the money in. So how much is that warranted, do you think? If, you, if you're, because um, there's something to be said, like if you're down there and you're in this hub of where there's this, uh, I, I guess these word again, like critical mass, uh, right. like engineers and like a, like a lot of talented people that you can kind of um, bounce ideas off with and recruit from like that. Some some of that might be merited, but uh, or or why? Like, what are your thoughts? Is it merited? Like, to what extent? Well, Maybe not. I think it. I think it's merited. I mean, to some degree. Well, first of all, just the cost of living down there it requires more money. I mean, it requires just more capital to get something going down there than it does up here. I mean, we can our cost of living and stuff. We think it's high up here, but boy, compared to down there, it's nothing. Uh, you know, so, you know, just running a company up here. You can run a company up here for less than you can run it down there. So, um, you know, there are more connections. There's more critical mass down there. Uh, Portland has definitely um, changed over the last five to ten years in that there's a lot more critical mass going on in Portland than, than there used to be. I mean, and, it, and you see it by the companies moving in. I mean, you know, between, you know, Facebook and and um and Google and Amazon and everybody else putting major centers and development centers in Portland. I mean, it is creating a critical mass, and that is creating. It has already created the critical mass um, that that ha- that 
that we need up here. I mean, it's still not as big as the Bay Area by any means, but it's, you know, we have our little niches up here that we are really the best in the world at. So, um, you know, it's, it's good. But is the, is the valuation, the difference in valuation uh, justified? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't argue. Right? I don't. Interesting. Does um so given that like valuation uh here in Portland are, are a little bit lower um by like about five eighths um right. which I don't know I don't need to like hold you to like that specific number but um does that kind of provide does that provide like a tailwind to turn as an angel investor? Yeah, sure. So that's yep. like there's an advantage to being an angel investor in Oregon, like down in the valley. Right. Except for down the valley, you got a lot more options of what to invest in than there are in Oregon. Okay. And so it's, you know, right. it's a two-edged sword. <laughs> okay, yeah, so the strengths and weaknesses. Right. So this is really interesting. I'm, I'm glad I reached out to you, um, even exceeding my expectations, which were already uh, really fun stuff to learn. <laughs> yeah, hope you're learning. So imagine you can go back to some point in time when you, when you were uh, starting a new business for yourself, and uh, you can give yourself an extra hour a day. How would you tell your past self to spend that hour? Yeah, that's a good question. So time is always the limiting factor. What a question. That's the limiting factor. So I'm going to assume from your question as as related to the business world because... Uh, oh, it always... can be your personal life. It can be whatever. It, you can spend it however you want. All right. Well, so there was, in my mind, when I was doing heavily involved in uh, and actively managing and building businesses, I divided my life into three aspects. One was my family life, um, you know, I was raising kids and all that kind of good stuff and spent as much time as I could at that and definitely segmented that. There was my personal one, personal side of it, which was just working out, eating healthy, trying to, um, you know, I, I was into sports, so, you know, I was into karate or, or racquetball or weightlifting or whatever, but there was just personal time to keep my personal self. And then the business side, uh, I would have probably... The amount of time that I dedicated each one, even though it wasn't equal, was about the right um, split for me and my personal objectives. The thing that I would do, have done differently uh, is probably spent more time reading and learning about how to motivate people, how to understand and motivate people. I didn't, if I had an extra hour a day, I would have learned more and understood more about how to, what motivates people and how to manage people. That applies to basically all three of those, how to, you know, how to manage your family, how to manage your kids, how to manage people at work, how to, um, all that kind of stuff. But to understand people's motivations, expectations, and what they want out of life is extremely important, and I wish I would have been better at it. So with that in mind, and do you have any um, books or resources that you've kind of picked up along the way in that area specifically? Um, yeah, there's actually a, there's one uh, from the Malcolm, the Malcolm Gladwell book called Blink. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but it's about, you know, essentially first impressions and how they can be right or wrong and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's a very um, informative book. It, it's in, in my mind, it sort of changed the way that um, I draw my first impressions or, or look at things because there are a lot of things that happen uh, based upon, uh, you know, blink of the eye, you know, just really quick things that you have to understand as, as specifically as related to interpreting people and understanding people. Things happen very, very quickly. Um, so you need to understand that. And so, 
I would certainly suggest anybody read that book. That's a, that to me is um, was an interesting, very interesting book. Do you have any other favorite books or resources um, outside of that area? Uh, so, you know, there's, uh, if a person's going to start a business uh, and, you know, looking at that, there's Stephen Blank's work, um, you know, the Startup Owner's Manual is a guide on how to build a business. That, I think, is a very good book. If you haven't, if there's somebody going to start a business and not already running it, but is in the, the mode of starting a business, that that is a book I would suggest, the Startup Owner's Manual. By Stephen Blank. Okay. Yeah, Stephen, Stephen Blank's stuff is um, it, it's good. I mean, it's fundamentally, he sort of codifies and puts engineering work into how to do it versus it used to be too much gut and feel and everybody knew how to do it, but they couldn't explain it. He basically, basically put engineering sort of talent to it and said, it's a process. Here's the process. Yeah. Um, so it's good. Those are, those are two I sort of think of. Another one I sort of found personally interesting was uh, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. Um, again, it's sort of, um, it's a history of the world kind of stuff that really does apply in the business world in many, many ways. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll check all, well, all three of those out. Um, yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much for, uh, sharing your time with me today, Dan. I had a, a great time talking to you. It's my pleasure. Hopefully it'll be helpful. You can find a complete list of the different conferences and funds that Dan mentioned, as well as his book recommendations in the show notes. If you like this podcast, please help me out by leaving a rating and a review on Apple iTunes or on Apple Podcasts in your app. This episode's review comes from someone who filled out, how about no, in the username section of the app, which is so far so good. They said, great interview with Jared Rallison. Very interesting discussion of how he got started and the art of making wines. Keep up the good work. I really appreciate that review. Thank you. I also really like hearing feedback from anyone, good or bad. So if you haven't left a review yet, help me rise in the Apple rankings by doing just that. After you leave your review, or if you've left one already, shoot me an email at nicholaspeel at gmail.com, and I'll send you the names of my two favorite books of the last year. Music for this episode is by Cambrian Explosion, who over the last weekend saw a cloud that kind of looked like a dog. Boy, that is just a great story. Cambrian Explosion, I always love hearing about your adventures, and I'm sure it was a very cool cloud dog. You can find their music floating on the airwaves at cepdx.bandcamp.com, Apple iTunes, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.